Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Central Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nick C., a host of the channel. Today, I'll be talking with my guest, Dr. James Pickett, about his new book, Polymaths of Islam, Power and Networks of Knowledge in Central Asia, published in 2020 by Cornell University Press. James Pickett is assistant professor in the Department of History at the University of Pittsburgh, where he teaches Central Eurasian and Persianate history as well as the history of Imperial Russia and the Soviet Union. He received his PhD from Princeton University in 2015. James, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Nick, for that kind introduction. Uh, It's a little, (laughs) in some ways, a little intimidating to be here. I've uh, been listening to the New Books Network podcast for so long, uh, (laughs) finally to be on it with talking about my own book. So thanks so much. Yeah, and we're really excited to have you. Um, And I really enjoyed this book. Um, But you know, to kind of get into our discussion today, I wanted to start um, by asking you about your your motivation motivations for researching this topic. Um, how did you come to write a book about the kind of Persianate or a book about Persianate Islamic intellectuals in, in early modern Central Asia? Sure. Yeah, and I have to <laughs> I have to say, you know, I'm I'm always quite jealous when I hear the answers that other guests of this show uh, offer because you know they always have such great stories or personal connections. And I don't really uh, have either of those things. Um, you know, I have no deep connection to the region before I started studying it. Um, but I did. I, I have been interested in uh, the history of Islam for quite a long time. Um, and it just so happens that I uh, went to a small liberal arts school uh, for my undergraduate called Carleton College, where Adib Khalid uh, is, you know, a, a scholar there and a teacher there. And I took his classes uh, and really fell in love with the um, with the history of the region. So it was really happenstance that I think that pulled me down this road. Although I will say that for me, the kind of um, the gateway drug was the realization that a part of the Soviet Union, a con- you know, a communist state, was Muslim. Uh, and, you know, obviously that's that won't be news to anyone listening to this podcast. But when I was a freshman uh, in undergrad, um, I found that just fascinating. And that, uh, also that was through, you know, uh, Adib Khalid's classes. And that pull- even though my research now primarily focuses on the, the pre-Soviet period, um, that was what really sucked me in uh, to the study of Central Asia. Um so, so, yeah, so it's, it's probably more happenstance than, <laughs> than anything else. I should, I could also add, though, just that um, out of college, I became um, uh, involved in a um, blogging network called New Eurasia that was uh, trying to promote citizen journalism in the region. Um, and this, if, if, I, if there was any question that I was going to study Central Asia before that, uh, that really solidified my interest because it uh, provided a way for me to visit the region, um, but also really get my, uh, you know, get some experience writing about it. So that's really fascinating. And, and, you know, you're really lucky and it's not surprising if you had um, a professor like Adib Khalid um, teaching you about Central Asia that you would uh, kind of be inspired to continue on that path. Um, But I'm curious about, um, you know, you've kind of talked about your, 
um, interest in Central Asia overall, but how did you come to this uh, focus on, on specifically the Persianate or the Persianate world? Um, because in your book, it's it's a very specific um, focus that you have, and you have it, it seems like you have very strong ideas about um, how kind of uh, Persianate culture operated in, in early modern Central Asia. So when did you start um, to delve more deeply into that subject matter? Yeah, it's a great question. And I imagine we'll get more in, into the sort of specifics of what that term means and some of the different takes on it in a moment. But in terms of its relationship to, to why I got interested in uh, Persian um, culture and also in the ulama, it's, uh, that's somewhat straightforward. Um, you know, I remember when I was doing sort of uh, rec- uh, sort of the pre-dissertation research trip, um, I was spending most of my time in uh, post-Soviet Central Asia, but then I, um, I went and did some, some very brief uh, work in the archive in Kabul in Afghanistan to, to see, just to assess what sort of materials might be there to work with. And, you know, there are more, you know, on paper, there are more Tajiks living in Afghanistan than in Tajikistan. And I had spent by that point quite a bit of time living and traveling and working in Central Asia. So I expected that the sort of the, the cultural gulf, uh, you know, there, I, there, I'd find a lot of things in common. And of course, there are a lot of things in common, but I was more struck by um, how much changes when you cross that border uh, between post-Soviet Central Asia and, and the territories to the south. And the reason that interested me is because during the time period I studied, that wasn't the case. As in, you could travel that you know across, that, across the Amudarya River and much further, and the cultural world, particularly at the elite level, uh, was fully commensurable. And I just found that so, so interesting. I wanted to understand the world before the Soviet rupture, uh, to, to, and, and I was interested in those uh, long-term and, and geographical continuities, and the sort of Persianate studies, um, and what we'll, what we'll you know get into as the cosmopolis was the was the way that I made a sense of that phenomenon. Yeah, let's talk about this term cosmopolis because you know, as somebody who um, is kind of delving. Um, into early modern Central Asia, it's not it's not like my main area of focus. Um, you know, this was something new to me. Is that a term that you've come up with um, to describe your research, or is this part of an existing literature and you're kind of building on it? Um, I guess could you describe what you mean by uh, the Persianate cosmo, uh, cosmopolis for uh, our listeners, and um, how does that help you understand what's happening um, in kind of intellectual circles in, in early modern Central Asia. Absolutely. Um, so that, I mean, the first thing is I definitely, so both the term Persianate and Cosmopolis are parts of existing literature that I'm building on, but I did not coin either of those things. And I'll, I'll, I'll explain how what I'm doing fits into those scholarships. But let's back up for just one second. And, you know, anytime you introduce words that in scholarship that people aren't, nece- that re- even educated readers are not necessarily um, uh, familiar with that you, you need to justify that. And in this case, I really do think that those categories uh, are in a way practical solutions to practical to a practical problem. And the, the, the practical problem is this, which is that, you know, when we're talking about the way that culture and religion and literature functioned in the pre-modern period, you know, anything before, say, the 20th century, um, most of the categories that are default categories that we that we turn to are modern ones, which is to say primarily national ones. So this is why you get so many debates about whether 
this or that uh, you know cultural artifact is really Uzbek or really Tajik, that sort of thing. What we're, what people are doing are is applying these these national categories to a, a time period when they don't really have any um, uh, you know role to play. It's sort of like you know trying to fit a square peg into a, a round hole. So the the terms like Persianate and ideas like Persianate and Cosmopolis help us get away from that and start looking at this uh, this this cultural uh, um, ecosystem on its own terms. And you might think, well, one way of getting away from that is just to use a, you know a regional a larger regional category like Central Asia. But Central Asia, you know, is a is a term that I use in the book, but it's a category of convenience. It's a it's a modern area studies category. It doesn't really have any. Um, organic basis uh, in the region's history itself. Um, so it's not really a solution to that problem either. Um, so, so what is the, so what is the sort of the, what this term cosmopolis is trying to capture? Part of it is that um, pre-modern elite cultures were astonishingly uniform across both time and space. Um, but again, the, the, the elite uh, qualifier there is an important qualifier. You know, the, the, we're talking about a very narrow slice of the population Yet it's we're, we're talking about a very you know what, what I'm getting at is that you know um, you know culture produced in the medium of say Arabic or Persian uh, you know were, were uh, had a lot of continuity across many centuries and across a huge amount of territory. Another thing that uh, um, that the so and so the the person who coined the term cosmopolis uh, was a scholar named Sheldon Pollock, and he was actually formulating it in relation to Sanskrit. But the model works very well uh, in many different cultural contexts. Um, another scholar named Alexander Beecroft has done a great job of sort of extrapolating on that model and, and showing how it applies in many, many different uh, parts of world history. Um, but another uh, thing that uh, another um, purpose that these conceptual tools serve is to help us think about the relation, the relationship between different language cultural formations, um, namely the fact that they are nested. So, for instance, um, uh, Persian uh, high culture, uh, so Persian language literature, that sort of thing, it borrows a lot. You know, you can't overstate how much it borrows from Arabic, right? It's assuming uh, the Arabic uh, curriculum, literature, um, it's been borrowing words from it, uh, and so forth. Um, and then Turkic borrows tremendously from Persian, uh, even though, uh, and thereby borrowing it borrows from Arabic. So these these languages and liter- literary complexes are kind of nested within one another. Um, so that's a, so that's a when we're thinking when that's a very big picture way of looking at it. But when we when I get into some of the different um, questions more specific to 19th century Central Asia that my book's trying to to answer, I turn to that model a lot to explain. For instance, why it is that a scholar could say move from Bukhara to a place like Kabul or Balkh and and you know not miss a beat and have his, have his uh, his um uh, his or her uh, um, skill set and forms of knowledge fully um, commensurable and transferable. Yeah, and I think we'll we'll get to that below. Um, I wanted to kind of tease out something that you said earlier in your answer. You were talking about kind of the way that. Um, I don't know if we want to call it like national identities and national historiographies um, or kind of history seen through a national lens in Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, um, especially kind of shaped the way that that history of the 19th century um, has been written. Um, could you talk about that a little bit more? I mean, is the how, how does this relate to the kind of standard division we see in Central Asian history of 
sedentary populations versus nomadic populations or Turk versus Tajik. Um, are in, in, in more specifically, like how does, how does your work disrupt that or, or maybe not disrupt, but, but move a little bit beyond that. Great. That's a great, yeah, that's a great way to put some more specificity on, on how this model relates to Central Asian history. Um, so first, first of all, you know, the, the, a, um, a paradigm very common in Central Asian studies, you know, nomadic versus sedentary. I fully embrace that. That that works very well. I think the problems start when you uh, when you try to map that specifically to identity. So you say, oh well, the the nomads are Turks, and the and the um, and the sedentary people are Tajiks. It's much messier than that. And so you know, the, so when um, so for instance, you imagine someone coming from a Turkic nomadic background. They come to um, so they probably speak some dialect of Turkic. It could be you know, something close to modern Uzbek, it could be something close to modern Kazakh, it could be something, you know, in between something else entirely. So they come to Bukhara, and what do they do? They, they first they need to learn, so the, the madrasa lessons are taught in Persian, so first they have to uh, learn Persian as a way of accessing an, yet another uh, curriculum. So, you know, again, these are, if we're thinking in terms of identity, you know, you might, there's an argument to, to be made that there's some kind of Turk, I guess, uh, you know, they're speaking Turk, Turkish, uh, like a, a, some dialect of Turkic at home, but then they're engaged, their their first step is to learn some kind of Persian, uh, uh, literary Persian, uh, as a means of accessing a predominantly Arabic curriculum uh, in the madrasa. Um, so you know they're in, they're in, they're engaging all three uh, different kinds uh, of nested uh, high cultural formations. Um, you know Arabic via Persian, maybe via Turkic. I mean, they're talking to each other. They're, they're, they have study guides in, in, in Turkic. They're getting tips from their classmates. So it's really hard to, you know, what is that? I mean, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't think it's a, if you're, if you're asking what is that in terms of, is that really uh, a Turkic identity, really an Uzbek identity? Those questions just don't, you know, they don't make sense in a way that the sources can really answer. Uh, but I do think that thinking in terms of how they're engaging uh the cosmopolis uh is much more useful um so you know they're they're engaging the uh um persian cosmopolis uh, and thereby tapping into the the arabic islamic uh um cultural formation which per, the persian assumes uh and takes for granted and, and incorporates i guess uh you know the, to answer like the one of the ways that i so again these these concepts are ones that i'm building on but I'd say that um, my work intervenes them in maybe maybe three sort of specific ways, which relate to what you just asked. Um, one is that you know I don't think of the the Persianate uh, as a kind of identity. Uh, I, I think of it you know as in in a way, if you think of identity as something that pe- that people are self consciously identifying as, it's a it's a modern term invented in the last twenty years, thirty years. So you know how c- could it be? People are not thinking of them of themselves as Persianate, obviously. Um, so we're thinking. I'm thinking about it more as in terms of a curriculum, as a, a canon of literature that people are engaging, and that literature and those that writing shapes their worldview, shapes the way they they understand the world. But it's not at least a, in a narrow a narrow definition. I don't really think of that as an identity. Um, the second thing is, you know, the, the term Persianate is not always. So I'm, I'm making an argument for it to, that we ought to consider it as sort of a subset. Of, of Islamic, something that assumed that that was that was permeated with Islamic terminology uh, and concepts that were drawn from directly from Arabic literature, uh, and therefore, uh, and then we should that, and that's the way to think of it, um, which is not the way it's always used. Uh, other people have, you know, will use the term Persianate uh, um, as something that's, you know, maybe like sometimes even a secular layer on top of Islamic. 
Um, so I think it's, but for my purposes, it's important to, to consider the way that, um, that Persian and high culture assumed uh, and took for granted uh, that Arab, you know, in the case of Bukhara, that, that very palpable Arabic curriculum that's undergirding and informing the Persian layer on top of it. The same way Turkic, which was <laughs> Turkic as a, as a, especially written Turkic was not as common in Bukhara as it was elsewhere, but when it was, but it existed there as well. And it was layered on top of the Persian, which was layer, layered on top of the Islamic. And the third thing, you know, and the reason this is interesting, that this is useful for my work is just, you know, occasionally um, because it's uh, because per, uh, Persian studies have often been connected with literature uh, and studies of literature. I think it's, you know, I, I emphasize in my work that we have to remember that um, being the social group, i.e. The, the ulama, who speak for this high this high cultural uh, corpus, this canon, and and, and um, can authoritatively write new, uh, make entries into it, can interpret it. That carries with it tremendous power. I mean, it's uh, it's it's you're describing how kings ought to behave. You're describing describing who is properly Muslim or not. Um, so the, their undisputed status as the interpreters of Islam. But also this uh, this this cultural milieu of, of this Persian cultural milieu, which were intertwined, that is a big part of what made the ulama such a powerful social group. Yeah, and I want to dive um, more more closely into um, Bukhara and and you know which plays a central role in your book as kind of um, one of I don't know one of many um, Persianate kind of centers. So this is a center of Islamic learning. Um, but what I really liked about the book is is that we actually can trace the origins of Bukhara coming, you know, Bukhara Sharif. I think you mentioned like the Bukhara the Magnificent, or um, um, and, and you kind of um, well, you know, standing from twenty twenty or twenty twenty one, it seems that uh, Bukhara has always been this kind of magnificent place, and and you know. It's, it's splendor is, is sort of uh, timeless in a way. You know, that's, that's even if you watch um, Central Asian films from the 20th century, you kind of see this. But um, what you seek to do is, is kind of actually trace the origins of Bukhara as kind of this special place for um, Islamic learning. Um, and to do that, you, you also kind of set the chronology of your book, which is um, within some, you know, you, you use this phrase, the long 19th century. Mm-hmm. So can you tell the listeners a little bit, um, what do you mean by long 19th century? And why is Bukhara over Balkh, which you also mentioned, or some of these other centers of Islamic learning, um, so important? What does it tell us about um, some of the questions you're seeking to answer? Great. So I'll, I'll um, take, so Bukhara in relation to periodization. Um, so you know, the, the, sometimes I, the, not only do I call it the long 19th century, it kind of half jokingly, I refer to it as the even longer 19th century, uh, stretching from Nader Shah's conquest in the middle of the 18th century up until uh, the, the Bolshevik conquest of Bukhara in 1920. Um, and so it was a little bit tongue in cheek, but it is making uh, that periodization is doing something also serious. Uh, which is one thing is that it's not using um, it's repurposing something you know a term specific to European history using non-European boundaries. Uh, so it's trying to disrupt that, but with the purpose that you know very common in um, a very common chronology, a very common periodization is thinking about the pre-colonial versus the colonial periods uh, in scholarship. 
which is, you know, for some questions, that's fine. Uh, but, you know, I wanted to look at it a little differently and sort of uh, try and transcend that divide. So part of the, what I'm doing with the, with the long 19th century, you know, the even longer 19th century is using it as a periodization uh, to get beyond the, the pre, uh, the colonial, pre-colonial um, thing. You know, I'm not uh, necessarily promoting it as something that everyone should use. You know, there's the different, like, you know, different periodizations work, diff- work well for different, you know, research questions. But for what I'm doing, I do think that this, uh, you know, it, it, it makes a certain kind of sense. Um, so for instance, if you're, you know, Nader Shah's con- uh, con- so Nader Shah was a uh, a conquer you know a, an Iranian conqueror uh, that you know essentially uh, his conquest reset the political landscape you know over wide swaths of Persian and Eurasia, not just in Bukhara. You know, he broke the back of the Mughal Empire, uh, new dynasties in Iran, uh, the, the Durrani dynasty of Afghanistan, and the Mangat dynasty of Bukhara both owe their origins to um, service in Nader Shah's military empire. Um, and then also, and, and then, so that's on the one, that's a, as a, you know, as one possible, uh, beginning to this period. And then in the, as I explained in the epilogue of the book, um, for the Madrasa elite culture that this book is looking at, I do think the Soviet period does mark a hard rupture for this kind of Islamic culture, not for all kinds of Islam, uh, as many other scholars have very aptly shown, uh, you know, the, the um, Islam survives in all sorts of ways during the Soviet period, both officially and unofficially. But for this world of uh, of the ulama, at least in the way that I talk about them, um, you know, their their time is very limited once the Soviet period starts. So that's the work. It's that's the work that the periodization is doing for my work. I mean, just a quick like you know, one last note on periodization. You know, um, I do think that uh, in some ways I see this work fitting in to the early modern period in a very serious way, even though, even though it goes into the 19th and even uh, 20th century, um, we, we can trace and for the, some of the reasons I was describing related to the use of this word, uh, this term cosmopolis, the Persian cosmopolis, one of the comments I made was that it's very enduring both in space, but also in time. And so the uh, ulama that I'm studying are engaging with uh, an enduring tradition that goes back, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, Okay, so then the second part of your question was about uh, uh, you know Bukhara specifically and how that turn, how Bukhara as a place fits into this periodization. Is that correct? Yeah, and and um, you know why also why specifically Bukhara? Because as you mentioned, um, there are other kind of Persianate centers. I mean, presumably you could have written a book about Balkh or something like that. And would you have come up with a similar story? You think, or is there something unique about Bukhara? Okay, great. I see. Yeah, no. So, um, Bukhara, uh, you know, so this is, this is really gets to the, the sort of argument in chapters two and three, which is, you know, the story of how Bukhara, um, in a way reached its cultural religious zenith, uh, during this particular time period, uh, the early modern period as a whole, but also especially the, the long 19th century. Um, which is to say, you know, so on the one hand, I am kind of, um, deconstructing a little bit the the claim that you'll hear even today in some ways most of all today about Bukhara's timelessness you know the, the idea that it has always been a pinnacle you know an Islamic center in the region uh, and from the early Islamic period uh, and even the late Sogdian period and the pre-islamic period you know Bukhara is an important cultural center but there were ebbs and flows to that um, specifically you know at different points in time, you can talk about, as you mentioned, Balkh, but also especially Samarkand, uh, especially in the Timurid period, 
um, as eclipsing Bukhara, right? So if you, um, you know, if you're living in say the 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 15th century, you, you would, Bukhara would be an important city. You know, you have a very important uh, scholarly don- dynasties that other scholars have sort of traced the uh, traced the um, the fates of. Um, but if it was at the very least places like Samarkand were peer competitors, but in the early modern period, when the capital of the Shibanid dynasty shifts over to Bukhara, um, and you have a tremendous, tremendous investment in, uh, the infrastructure of the city, by the time we get to the time period I'm looking at, um, Bukhara really is the uncontested, uh, center of the region, uh, in terms of cultural, uh, political, uh, and for my purposes, religious and cultural life. Um, it's uh, serving as a magnet that's pulling in scholars to study there from far beyond the political boundaries of the city-state itself. Uh, so Muslims are coming in the thousands from the Volga Urals in Russia, from India, from uh, what is now Western China. Um, and so there's a history to this. There, there's a, um, the, the long 19th century building on the, you know, the, the infrastructure and the, and, the, and the cultural development in the early modern period is when Bukhara really achieves this status as a peerless, a peerless center of um, of Islam and Persian and high culture, uh, um, and that in, in a way that overshadows um, neighbor, still neighbors, neighboring cities that were still really uh, you know important centers in their own right, like like Kashgar and Samarkand and Balkh and places like that. Um, but still, it had, it had a, an outsized um, allure compared to those other places in this period, maybe not in earlier centuries. Yeah, and you know what's what's really interesting to that um, about about that point is that it also kind of um, reminds us that that these, especially the Afghan border, is so incredibly recent. You know, I was um, somewhat anecdotally, I was at a conference once talking to some Afghan students about um, you know a paper that I was writing about Bukhara and kind of cultural representation of Bukhara, and they said you know there was this long tradition of lamenting the loss of Bukhara. Uh, to the Soviets in in 1920, and um, that kind of shocked me a little bit. Um, but you know, now that I'm reading your book and and kind of thinking about the longer place of Bukhara in the region, um, that shouldn't be so surprising. So I think you know that's really interesting to see how kind of that plays out over time. Um, but I want I want to shift the the focus of our conversation a little bit and kind of get into the the meat of the book and and kind of the sources that you're relying on. So, you know, there's a huge focus on kind of this intellectual elite, the ulama, um, you know, in your book, and and you're kind of looking at how they've changed and transformed over the long 19th century, but also how how the kind of um, literary and, and educational institutions that they're operating in are, are remarkably persistent, even through, um, you know, the period of Russian uh, colonialism. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the group that you studied and, and what kind of sources you're using um, to, to get at their stories and, and, how, and explore how this kind of intellectual tradition operated? Yeah, so I mean, for, to back up just even a step, I mean, so ulama is a, an Arabic term that means uh, those who, literally those who, who know, those who are knowledgeable. Um, it's a term uh, that you'll find in, in a study of Islam in almost any almost any time period in any part of the world. So it's a, in some sense, it's an enduring social group, right? You know, it's, it's uh, you can see the, you, you can find, uh, you know, tongue in cheek, uh, ulamologies, uh, for, for most, um, periods of, in, periods of Islamic history in most places. Um, 
but what they were changed a lot uh, over time. Um, and so, you know, the one of the arguments that the the book makes is that, you know, the the what one individual, you know, as as we follow Islamic history more generally, where we have these uh, um, the many uh, increasing many more forms of knowledge uh, brought into the fold as uncontroversial um, part of the uh, um, planks of the canon that any educated person should know, the ulama became even more and more polymathic. Uh, they, they, they became more and more, the, the, the sorts of things that, they, that an average um, scholar would, would learn what it became more and more, more diverse. And so by the 19th century, that, that, you know, that, that's kind of come to um, reach its zenith in some ways. Um, so that, you know, again, the, the, the idea of ulama is enduring, but, uh, you know, what they actually were, who they were, uh, changes quite a bit, you know, the, the, and I, you, so the, and I can say more about that, but you, you were also asking about sources. Um, and so, you know, it's, uh, and I think that one of the first things that, that, um, you know, there's a connection between the, fa- what the, the fact that I just mentioned that you can find ulamologies of so many different societies and the question of sources. Um, the ulama are the learned elite. They are scholars, they are literate, and they write about themselves a lot. Uh, and Central Asia is no, no exception. Um, so we, we tend to, you know, in many different societies, we tend to have a lot of sources that uh, are produced by the ulama about the ulama. Um, that said, uh, the nature of those sources are, are very, very different. I, there, I do make a, a, um, an argument in the book for reading across j- different kinds of different genres of sources so that we don't end up unintentionally um, just reproducing and describing the genre itself rather than getting at the underlying phenomena. Yeah. And let's, um, let's talk a little bit about um, the kind of knowledge, um, you know, or the the very specific forms of knowledge that these uh, ulama um, kind of master um, in the time that you're looking at, because, you know, like the title of the book reflects, um, what you're pointing out is 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 that they they do kind of reach kind of a very elite level of, of being able to um, you know operate in medicine, astronomy, various sciences, um, even the occult. Um, so so what's the main point here? Um, is is this? Are you bringing something new uh, to the conversation by pointing out um, you know just how um, how they managed to to master these various uh, areas of knowledge? Yeah, I think so. Um, here's the here's a in, in a way this is the big intervention that I want to make, um, and this is even in the you know in a way this is why I chose this title for the book Polymaths of Islam. Um, okay, so if you look at a lot, you know, particularly the particularly earlier scholarship, but really um, any kind of scholarship, like the the ulama is a lot of the time synonymous with the jurist specifically, right? Like these, so these are, you know, in the colonial literature, they come across as sort of fanatical mullahs, but even in uh, modern scholarship, you know, the, the ulama are the masters of Islamic law. A, a lot of the time, it's the persona that they adopt. Um, and so, okay. So the ulama is one. So now I'm, now I'm sort of uh, repeating the, the received wisdom here, not my argument. So the ulama, if we say that they're sort of synonymous with the, the jurists, with the, the legal specialists, then who else is there? Well, there's the Sufis, and then there's the poets, and then there's you know the occultists, like you mentioned. There's the the, the specialists in medicine, the physicians, right? And these are all different uh, social groups. That's how it's usually seen. And sometimes they 
are even opposed to one another. So, you know, you have the ulama as the austere sort of no nonsense, uh, you know, buzzkill jurists. And then you have the Sufis as the, as the, you know, more um, cosmopolitan alternative to them or something like that. And so one of the, by, by saying, by refer, by th- rethinking these figures as polymaths of Islam, I'm asking that we, we reconsider that entirely. And instead of thinking in terms of um, social groups, we should think about them as one integrated social group. And then we should think about different forms of knowledge and different social roles that are performed by, by those same group of people in different social circumstances. Um, so, you know, a big, one of the most enduring um, binaries in the literature is sort of ulama versus Sufis. These are different groups. I'm sure I imagine most people will have seen that um, in, you know, articulated in the literature somewhere. Um, but in fact, you know, I, you, it's difficult to find any uh, ulama at all who weren't, uh, you know, by one, you know, Sufism itself is a very difficult, you know, it has a lot of different def- definitions, but by one definition or another, all of the ulama were uh, practicing some kind of Sufism, which again is all it would. This is a point I make in more detail in the book, but that, that Sufism means a lot of different things. But by one or another definition, uh, they're all practicing Sufism. And similarly, most people that we think of Sufis, I mean, they 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 not only do they have a madrasa education under their belt, you know, and therefore becoming themselves knowledgeable, which is the definition of ulama. They're usually uh, using that um, madrasa education as a way, as a platform for pursuing Sufi disciplines as a kind of postgraduate uh, kind of uh, form of education. Um, so, you know, the, so I think I consider this a, you know, a, a fairly significant conceptual intervention, like to really move away from thinking about these different, um, uh, these different social roles, these different uh, forms of knowledge, which by the way, correspond to genres, which is another reason I'm interested, which relates to my previous point. But instead, again, thinking about how it could be that because that um, an individual scholar could perform personas that seem to us so different in hindsight in different contexts, you know. So, uh, you know, working in a, and this was very common, you know, working in a, sh- a Sharia court uh, in the morning and then heading over to the Sufi lodge to preside over it as a sheikh in the evening. Uh, this is very, very and where you might also practice the occult sciences and write Persian poetry. So that so this is very much an integrated milieu in that way. Yeah, and I want to talk a little bit more about both both Sufi learning and and the occult. Um, you know, because in in the book, and you you write, and I quote: "By the early modern period, the lines between scholar and mystic had had begun to blur." Um, and you say that most intellectuals uh, were a bit of both. Um, what what defines the occult? Um, I mean, when you're reading these sources. Um, are they referring to it as the occult or is, is that kind of a modern label that we're putting on a certain set of practices? Because that was kind of a question I had was like, okay, well, if they, they are um, kind of engaging with the occult, maybe they didn't recognize it as such. Right. So, so um, in this case, so with it, um, with the, in the case of the occult, uh, we are actually in a somewhat fortunate position in that there's an emic or a sort of, um, uh, like a, a term in the tradition itself that corresponds pretty well uh, to to what we usually mean by um, the occult. So ulume gharib, uh, which is like uh, yeah. So that that th- that's usually what it, when I use the word occult, following following scholars like Matt Melvin Kushki, who's doing pioneering work on uh, Islamic occult sciences. Uh, that's usually the, the that that maps pretty well to that term. I mean, within ulume gharib, like so within. 
uh, the occult science, what we would call the occult sciences. There's lots of specific disciplines uh, that were that were some were variously grouped under that that heading. Um, but you know the but uh, you know and it, I want to emphasize that these were understood as Islamic disciplines, right? So there there was nothing. Um, you know, this wasn't something that the, the, the occult sciences were not something that the ulama practiced practiced on the side and were embarrassed of. You know, the, they were sometimes criticized, but then that's true of a lot of other disciplines of Islamic learning as well. I mean, there there, there, were all, there were debates within the field, but they weren't seen as something you know outside of the Islamic fold. That's something that no respectable alim would uh, or no respectable scholar would actually do. Uh, and so, they, you know, again, they were uh, the occult. The various occult sciences were. Uh, elite, as in, you know, the, not the, the, unlike some of the other disciplines, it was not something that necessarily everyone would have done, but it was very common. And, and they, they appear when they appear in the sources, they're not as not uh, in hushed whispers as something to be embarrassed of. They're valorized. They're they're, they're it's it's a, a mark of a, of, ex, of, a, of specialized erudition. Um, you know, that, that just a quick, you know, there are kinds of uh, sorcery that uh, that have that are not understood in that way that were considered outside the fold, but they don't get mentioned in um, in these sources as much. And can you provide? Um, I don't know. I, th- I thought this was a really interesting part of the book, and not something that I typically encounter. So I was wondering if you could like um, describe some of these practices, um, which which you do in the book in detail. Um, oh sure, yeah. Um, so you know the, the the one of the so one of the points that I make in the so what one of the ways that I came to be interested in this is you know I mean I I've one of the source types of sources that I'm especially interested in are this would be a kind of a roundabout way to answer that question but um, there's these man, these uh, practical manuals called Jung and what they are is they're kind of just uh, um, notebooks of miscellany so like they're they're um, they have all it's where the, the, when I make this argument about the multi the, the eclecticism of the ulama, I'm doing that based on a number of different kinds of sources, but the, the Jung are a great example of where it all comes together. So that you can imagine these as a quick notebook that um, you know a scholar would take around with them and just record anything that's useful uh, in their different situations. So you know, and, and so like so you can see for an individual within an individual scholar's notebook, you can see all of the different uh, you know the, this whole constellation of forms of different forms of Islamic learning coming into one place. Uh, so you know. They'll have notes. They'll have um, you know notes about uh, uh, common uh, uh, um, answers to questions uh, in Islamic jurisprudence that they'll use as a model for fatwas and, and, and legal rulings. They'll have Persian poetry written into the margins. They'll have Sufi litanies. They'll have you know they think even things like recipes and that kind of thing. But also, so when I was doing my research, I also started notice, noticing strange symbols uh, in the margins of these things. You know, dots connected by lines and that sort of thing. Or, or numbers just uh, written in, in strange um, uh, patterns. And what, I, and what I eventually realized was that these were um, occult, uh, usually um, some kind of divination. So there's various different ways of doing it. There's different uh, sub, uh, you know, there's different disciplines within occultism in Islam. Um, but, some, but a lot of them involve uh, using letters or numbers or geometric forms, ge- geomancy, to predict the future, uh, in addition to ones that people are probably more familiar with, like uh, astrology and that kind of thing, um, but these appear in the in the in the manuals uh, that are you know primarily dedicated to things like law or medicine, right? So, um, so that's the main, that's one of the main functions that uh, that people are are using this material to do. A lot of it has to do with predicting the future or influencing the future to a degree. 
Yeah, thank you. Um, and just while we're still on this uh, conversation, you mentioned a little. You mentioned earlier that um, part of what you're trying to do um, with this focus on, on these various uh, areas of knowledge is kind of pre- present. I would I would say like almost a more um, sympathetic uh, view of, of the ulama. Um, you know, especially because I think, like you've mentioned, um, kind of Jadidist, so Muslim reformist, um, and, and both in kind of Russian uh, views of the ulama have kind of shaped the way that um, both uh, Russian, Uzbek, you know, Central Asian scholars and also scholars in the West have, have traditionally talked about them. You, you mentioned kind of uh, the idea of like the fanatic judge um, and so it seems to me that what, what you are trying to do is, is present a more sympathetic view, um, but also to show that that perhaps we really truly don't understand um, the ways that these these lemma operate within society. Um, and and to do so, you kind of talk about um, some of the the tensions and controversies um, in their practices. You know, we've talked about the occult practices, but you also talk about the use of um, opium and and wine. Um, as a way of, of challenging our, our kind of presentist uh, views of the ulama. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering, um, I don't know, what, what, what's the bigger takeaway here for early modern Central Asia? Um, does it help us understand um, any of the big, uh, what are the bigger questions that we can answer um, by looking at, at this specific group? And I guess what I'm also asking is, um, how does it? Re- how do the ulama relate to other um, kind of elite groups at at the time that you're looking at? Got it. Um, so, yeah, you might have to remind the, 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 remind me of some of the different parts of that question. But I'll take the first one, which is sort of about whether I'm trying to revise this into into a more sympathetic view of of the ulama. And you know, like I, my my answer might not be what what you'd necessarily expect on that question, which is just to say that. You're right. If we're coming from sort of earlier scholarship that's, uh, you know, taking colonial and Jadid sources more at face value to pay, to sort of to vilify the ulama who were their, you know, who were their enemies, then then sure. Yeah, I, I'm de- I definitely think that needs to be revised towards a more sympathetic view. Um, you know, the, but the I also in a, the, the word polymath often has, a you know, a very I, I mean it in a fairly literal way, as just as in people who have mastered a lot of different forms of knowledge, but it also has a, I, th- I acknowledge it has a fair, fairly positive ring to it. Um, and I wouldn't, you know, I don't necessarily, like I, what I sometimes in some parts of the literature, you, I, I think that uh, the, the ulama can be, come across, it can be celebrated in a way that I, I, I don't intend in this book as sometimes even as the sort of heroic, um, you know, indig- you know, local indigenous uh, resistors of colonialism. And I, I really don't see it that way. Um, in the sense that we just have to remember that um, these are really, really powerful individuals. Uh, they they have tremendous power over other people's lives, and there were you know a lot of people below them. Uh, so I you know I, I, I see. I, so if, if you're coming from a, a celebratory perspective, then then I maybe would want to sort of moderate it the other direction. But you're right. If you're coming from especially earlier scholarship and, and Central Asian studies, then 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 yeah, I'd, I'd, I would probably want to um, reassess the how we evaluate them. Um, Okay, so that, what was the what was the next part of your question? Yeah, yeah. Let me, um, <laughs> let me restate the question. No, it was, um, I was trying to do too much at once. Um, 
So in in the last in, in the later chapters of the book, um, you kind of look at 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 so. Sorry, in the middle chapters, you're kind of looking specifically at the ulema and the kind of knowledge they're using. And then at the later, in the later chapters, you kind of trace specific families of scholars and try to understand um, kind of how the ulema as a class of people are not class, but as a group of, of people in, in society relate to um, rulers um, and, and how they kind of like um, support um political dynasties. Um, and and you, one point that you make is that they kind of emerge during moments of political crisis, but then come to, I mean, if we're looking at, at how long these scholarly families actually continue to operate and, and, and maintain their position, um, it's pretty impressive. So why is this happening? And, and specifically, what about their knowledge set or what about their position in society makes them so um, useful uh, to these political dynasties like the Magdids? Got it, got Bukhara. it. Yeah, so I mean, for, for my work, I, so the, in the questions I'm answer, asking, I do find it useful to think about a kind of two-pronged uh, uh, elite uh, class in, in, Central Asia, in Central Asia. So on the one hand, you have the subject, the main subject of my book, the, the Islamic scholars or the ulama. On the other hand, you have the Turkic nobility. And of course, there's lots of other power holders. And as I, as I myself emphasize, these two groups, uh, you know, the lines between them blur all of the time, especially in one, in one direction, which is to say, um, you know, if you think about uh, the Turkic nobility uh, as um, a group on uh, their, their authority rests on their lineage and also uh, their mar- at least a memory of their martial abilities, right? This is, these are things you can celebrate openly. There, there uh, is a claim to authority that is explicit. And then you also have the claim to authority of the ulama, which is based on knowledge, right, on scholarship. Um, now, of course, you can, if you're a mem- member of the Turkic nobility, um, like, for instance, the Mangits, but also many other tribes, uh, Uzbek or otherwise, um, you can train your, and they did this all of the time. You can, uh, you can style, you, you can, um, you know, style yourself as an ulama. You can tra- learn those forms of knowledge and also become an ulama, uh, a member of the ulama, which doesn't necessarily undermine your other, you know, independent claim to authority based on lineage uh, and memory of martial prowess. Um, but one thing to keep in mind is that you can't go the other way. So like if you're an Islamic scholar, you know, you, no amount of training is going to make you get you acknowledged as a, is going to um, enable you to claim that other independent kind of authority. So even though I study the ulama, I talk about the Turkic nobility a lot because these, these two groups are intimately intertwined specifically, um, you know, the, as you, as you were just asking um, the Turkic nobility, rely on the ulama uh, to justify their you know, positions as rulers and also to run the government in all sorts of ways. Um, so there's a reason that the Turkic elite are investing so many resources in building up the, um, the institutions like the madrasas that produce this class of scholars. So even though, again, they're, they're, they're the, the, the core logic of their claims to authority are distinct and independent, um, they're intimately, you know, they're, they're, the, the one relies on the other in both directions. So we have this, you know, this long, this enduring alliance, alliance between these two social groups. Now, um, 
when we have moments of um, disruption, uh, and this is you know, in a way this this uh, relates directly to the how I periodize the book, right? When you have these these moments of of disruption, sort of the, you know some kind of insurrection, for, you know a conquest, the formation of a new dynasty, um, you often see new families, so new families of ulama establishing themselves in alliance with the the incoming Turkic dynasty. And this makes a, you know, a kind of, a kind of intuitive sense, right? Like, so that, you know, that the previous dynasty um, had been patronizing specific families of ulama. Uh, and so a new one's coming in with new, a new Turkic uh, dynasty is coming in with new claims, right? So they, oftentimes they bring in, that they start patronizing different dynasties of ulama who are then able to entrench themselves and protect, perpetuate their line. Uh, and so, you know, one of the examples in the book is this, you know, this, uh, there's a, there's a specific dynasty that gets established, um, in, in, whose, whose origins are wound up in Nader Shah Afshar's conquest of Central Asia. And I can trace that lineage all the way through to the, to the, to the Bolshevik conquest in 1920. Uh, so they have some real staying power over centuries. And again, this is not, not, not unique in Islamic history. Um, this has been a well-established, you know, th- there's lots of inter- like interesting, uh, uh, parallel examples of long-standing dynasties of scholars, but it's interesting the way that these moments of disruption enable a sort of a reset, and and and, 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 and it really puts the the relationship of the ulama and the Turkic nobility into relief in these when you see them being established in real time in the sources. And I think that's a good. This is a good time to kind of switch switch to the one of the last points you make in the book, which is about. Um, kind of, yeah, I mean, we've talked about the persistence of these groups, but um, the, conclu- the, the title of the conclusion is United in Eclecticism. Um, what do you mean by this term? And, you know, it, it, it seems like you're, you're indicating that there's kind of like the ulema are the strongest um, right before they're kind of swept away by the Bolshevik revolution. Um, and I think you're also trying to say something about um, just kind of the uniformity of this culture. Um, you know, you've alluded to the fact that they could, that these ulama could kind of bounce around uh, different cities um, and, and, and very easily fit into, um, you know, the, the structure of, the, of intellectual life in those various cities. So um, could you just elaborate a little bit on that point? And what do you mean by the the title of this conclusion? Right. So the, the you know the United in, in eclecticism was sort of a pithy way of um, of getting at this idea that um, they, that we are looking at one common social group, but but every but most of the people most of the individuals within that social group are very eclectic in the forms of knowledge that they uh, master. Um, you know. Whether they're the strongest they've ever been, uh, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that I would necessarily say that. But what I am, what I am sort of getting at is that over the long run of Islamic history, you kind of have a sedimentary, sedimentary process where new forms, you, you new, you know, if you go back to the very beginning, you have hadith, uh, right, and then uh, fiqh and other kind, another very early within the first several centuries of Islam, you have these early forms of knowledge getting uh, um, canonized into the into the into the curriculum of what a, a learned person should know. But as we all know from Islamic history, more and more things get added into that, into that mix as time goes on. So, you know, the, when I, when I, so, you know, for instance, we have 
notably the Persian, the Persianate canon, right, of, of poetry and, other, and Sufi writing and other, other forms of knowledge that are in the Persian medium. And I would also include, you know, Turkic, like less so in Bukhara, but uh, in other places in Central Asia, um, you also have uh, the Turkic vernacular culture being added into this, uh, to this um, eco- uh, ecosystem of what a, a scholar should know. Which is to say, you know, when I say that they're more eclectic than ever before in the long 19th century, it's not because they're, you know, uh, better scholars necessarily or anything like that. It's just that they're sitting on they're 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 standing on the um, on an edifice that has been built up, built up for over a millennium. Um, so that so that's the so so that's why I find remarkable about the ulama in this time period uh, is the, the sheer breadth of of what a, a, an educated individual is is often knows. Um, now to the the question of uh, the where part of that, how you know why was this edifice so remarkable, uh, remarkably wide in breadth and, and geographical breadth? Um, you know, one of the arguments I, I make earlier on in the book is that you know I do you do you can I, I try and trace contours of that as in you know even though the the, the broad emphasis I'm making is is, is that this skill set and this, these forms of knowledge were transferable. They weren't equally transferable everywhere. Uh, different pieces of it were different in different places. You know, an int- like an example would just be, say, Qajar Iran. So when people hear the word Persianate, of course, they want to, um, like, Iran comes to mind, for better or for worse. And actually, like, there wasn't, you know, there weren't a lot of, uh, you know, Iranian scholars showing up in the Bukharan madrasas. And the reason is, you know, at least as I argue, the reason is because parts of what they're, parts of the curriculum in Qajar Iran that, would have been transferable. They exist, you know. So they, they like the, the 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 poetical canon, for instance. But other parts don't. I mean, the 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 Shia uh, the Sunni Shia split matters in, in the sense that you know they're learning Hanafi law in Bukhara, which is you can't go and make as you can't use that as an employable skill in Iran, for instance. Um, so you can trace contours, but many parts of that uh, common curriculum, that common intellectual edifice, uh, uh, allow these scholars to to move to to move beyond Bukhara, which is one of the reasons that that um, that Bukhara's edu- educational infrastructure was so much grander than the actual political boundaries of the city. Yeah, thank you. Um, and I think that that might be a good place to um, stop our discussion. Of course, um, for the listeners, um, if if you are interested in learning more, I would encourage you to. Uh, pick up James's book, um, Polymaths of Islam. Um, and James, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show, but um, before we say goodbye, I was curious if, if you're working on any current projects or if you have any future projects in mind that you'd like to share with us. Yeah, um, so I'm currently working on a uh, study of what it meant to be a protectorate um, in the Russian Empire, but also looking at... Um, uh, indirect rule and sort of uh, semi-colonialism in, in, in India as well as a as a comparison with Bukhara. Um, you know, one of the um, as I mentioned earlier in the in this interview, one of the things that I was really struck by is how different a picture we get of Central Asian history when we read in different kinds of sources. And that may be that may be obvious, but you know, a lot of studies are really rooted in one particular register. So like, for instance, whether that's colonial sources or whether it's a particular genre of, um, of manuscripts. Um, and specifically, the, 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 the picture that the documentary re- record, so like as in sort of practical documents produced by the Bukharan emirate, 
uh, the picture that, that, that you get from uh, of what's going on is really quite different from the codified, you know, the the the, the very um, deliberate manuscripts that the the ulama are writing. All the ulama are writing the documents too, so it's not necessarily a difference in who's producing them. Um, but that got me inter- more interested in questions of, you know, what did it mean? So, you know, um, one thing that may- maybe I should have emphasized at the very beginning is one of the reasons that uh, the picture looks so different in Bukhara than than in other areas of Central Asia is that Bukhara was a was um, you know the dynasty remained intact even after its defeat by Russia, which means that um, you know that from the local from the ulama's perspective, you know there there's a lot more continuity continuity across the colonial divide than there might than there would have been from the the ulama's perspective living in say Tashkent or somewhere like that that was now d- d- being directly ruled by the Russian military uh, governor generalship, um, and so. You know what does that mean uh, from the perspective of Bukhara? So, like, what what is you know, what are the advantages? Uh, what are the disadvantages? How does that? How does um, over time? How does Bukhara start to look more and more like a directly directly ruled part of Russian Central Asia? In which ways did it? Was it this op- actually afford opportunities to invest in things like madrasas? You know, one of the points I make in the book in, in the Polymaths of Islam is that madrasa production continues and even increases uh, during the colonial period. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in investigating that further, and especially as revealed through this, uh, through the, the documents produced by that, that by that state. Um, and you know, really, this the, those documents uh, led me to um, a compa- you know the, an interest in, in doing this as a comparison with Hyderabad in, in South Asia. You know, similar similarly Muslim Persianate, uh, similarly indirectly ruled princely state in India as a way of um, of having the, the the source base for both these two places help shed light on one another. Um, for this, for the, the this book is obviously Polymaths of Islam is very much about Central Asia, but I, I spent quite a bit of time um, living and working in India as well, uh, um, digging through those archives for to shed light on Bukhara. So that um, gave me a, a chance to, to um, start down this road of, 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 of comparing those two places. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, unfortunately we don't have, um, enough comparative history being done in central Asia. So, um, it sounds like that book will, um, yeah, well, I'm certainly looking forward to it and, and who knows, hope, you know, once it's published and you've done all the research, maybe we'll be able to have you back on the show to talk about. Yeah. And what, um, what are the, I mean, one of the things that I think is interesting about that topic is just that it's, I, I consider that the project, to be both comparison, comparative and transregional. So, like, it's comparative mm-hmm. in the sort of um, in its in, in its in, in, as as a study of sovereignty. So, like, what does it what does it mean? What does indirect rule mean in these two contexts? It's comparative, but for some of the reasons that we discussed at some length in this interview, it's also transregional in, in terms of a study of Persianate cultures of documentation, right? So, looking at the ways that uh, bureaucracies and chanceries were shaped by this common Persian cosmopolis that was that you know that was was common to both Hyderabad and Bukhara. So, yeah. great. Well, thank you again, uh, James, for your time, and um, yeah, we'll look forward to uh, following your future research. No, thank you, and thank you for I mean, thank you for hosting this series. It's a it's a tremendous uh, service to the field.